dropping out was probably the best thing I could have done. I mean, obviously very challenging in the moment. And I actually remember I didn't even frame it to myself as dropping out because that felt too much like failing. And at that point, I wasn't yet on the bandwagon of how good failure was. So instead, I took a break. And so I said, okay, I'll just put this on pause. Um, and I and I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. But I'm a scientist. And so classic right. scientist, I was like, well, I'll do an experiment. Hey, baby. Hi. This was a lovely episode. This was a great one, guys. We talk with Catherine Zealand. She works at X, which is so Al- cool. Alphabet's Moonshot Factory. She tells us what a moonshot is, how they come up with the ideas, what their experimentation process is like, what segment of moonshots end up making it to the end, and some of the cool technology that she's working on that's 10 years out. So great nuggets here. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Hi Jen. It's so good. I miss you a lot. I miss your puppies. You still have Isla, but you don't have the puppies, right? Exactly. We just have um, the mum dog who was being totally quiet during the sound check and has now just decided to bark a little bit. But She's just telling us she's here and she's supporting and she's with us. Exactly. She's saying hi to you as well. All right. So we're here to chat about some of your work at X and to whatever extent you can share understanding that you're speaking as an individual and then also learning about how you got to X, which is also a very fun story. So let me set the scene for folks who are not as familiar with what X is. So it's Alphabet's Innovation Lab, and we've all used products that have come out of X. So we have Google Brain, which has now been implemented in products like Google Search and Translate. We have Gcam that's used in Google Pixel phones, I believe Google Maps. And then we've heard of companies as well like Waymo, self-driving cars. It's logged over 10 million miles. We've heard of Loom, which provides internet for communities in Africa and South America with these internet balloons. So we've heard of X, amazing work. I want to ask you though, to, to share with us what is X mission, what is X looking to do? Yeah, that's a great intro. Um, X is Alphabet's moonshot factory. And so, you know, when we think about the transformative effect that, that Google and YouTube and similar kind of uh, technology products have had on the world, uh, you know, Alphabet sort of has been riding that wave. And then they said, okay, but we actually want to also be looking ahead and saying, what's the next thing? It's like, what is the next kind of technology, the next really breakthrough idea that could have such a, a world-changing effect um, on the scale of, of Google search. And so that was the mission that X started with. And there, you know, you've, met, you've mentioned many of them. There are a few kind of high-profile examples, something like, like Waymo. And I think in our early days, there was a lot of just, oh, well, like what, what is a couple of big bets? Like what are the big ideas that could be moonshots? And I think what I found really interesting is over the last 10 years, We've tried to almost more come up with a process and a factory which makes this kind of innovation repeatable, right? So it's not just about finding one more big, exciting idea, but it's how do we build an organization which can repeatedly do cutting-edge innovation um, again and again and again, particularly given many of these things are hard to measure because X thinks about success as being one moonshot a decade, right? So that means we want something like Google um, every 10 years. 
And we expect, you know, we expect along the way moderate successes where it's a good idea, but it maybe doesn't quite reach that scale. And then also a lot of, of bad ideas, right? Like you're not going to get to that kind of real breakthrough without exploring lots of things that don't work first. Um, and so we spend a lot of time thinking about, well, given it's so difficult to measure a once a decade outcome, how do we also make this more of a process? Like how do we set up you know, a repeatable approach and a philosophy around innovation, which has a good chance at coming up with multiple of these ideas over the next, next few decades? Love it. And you mentioned getting to a Google type idea once a decade. You also mentioned moonshots. Help me understand what qualifies as a moonshot idea. We normally think of a moonshot as having three components. So one is it's solving a huge problem in the world. So for something like Waymo, we might think about traffic accidents, road injuries are a really uh, high cause of death in many parts of the world. Um, I work on a project now where the huge problem that we think about is human movement, right? So especially as people are getting older, but also after an injury, people are struggling to move about and that can really affect your quality of life. I think about that as often my grandmother who you know, really wanted to stay part of her community, but when she was struggling to walk just the mile from her house into the center of town, you know, then she struggled to go to church, she struggled to do her own shopping. And so human movement and, and especially the lack of movement is something which, which is a huge problem that affects many people. So those are examples of, of huge problem is kind of the first component. The second component we think of a moonshot is being enabled by some breakthrough technology, right? So what is different about the world, you know, now that means that we could solve this problem that many years ago, we couldn't. So again, sticking with the mobility example, and, and thinking about movement, robotics have come a long way. And so, you know, 10, 20 years ago, when people thought about how do we physically assist movement, you had these really heavy, clunky robots. Like that's not going to be the kind of thing that, that my mother or my grandmother could wear. But nowadays we have really lightweight batteries. We have lightweight motors. Um, we can integrate these technologies much more seamlessly with sensors and with, with our, our movement. And so, I mean, especially advances in computation, in sensing, in robotics, are kind of some of the breakthrough technology that might enable a moonshot. So number two is kind of breakthrough technology. And then the third component is some sort of radical idea or radical solution or, or really just like pulling, okay, taking the technology and apply it to the problem. Um, you know, and, and often these will start as questions, right? So like, oh, would it be possible for, you know, your clothing to be more intelligent? It like, is it possible for cars to drive themselves? What if we could predict the weather? You know, so it's sort of an articulation of almost a future state or a kind of a radical idea um, that's, that is ideally solving the problem and enabled by this technology. So those are the three uh, pillars that we'd associate with a potential moonshot. Yeah, makes sense. You mentioned this mobility idea with the elderly. It's a big space these days. I know about your grandma and, and I know that that's really personal to you. And then self-driving cars. Hey, we have Waymo now. We have lots of other companies working in the space. So really meaningful work. I am so fascinated by your brainstorming process, the fact that you really create a space where folks can come in with whatever idea they're personally interested in and throw it out there and trying to limit what the constraints are allowing the development and exploration of those ideas. Can you tell me more about what that brainstorming process is like and, and how you then select what ideas to initially a pre-mortem on? Yeah. We talk about sort of stage appropriate idea generation and risk appetites. 
And so X was kind of broken down into the first team is called rapid evaluation. So they're mm-hmm. probably what you're thinking of, like a small group of people brainstorm crazy ideas, look at things very briefly. And and I actually started in that team at X. Right. And then just for completeness, kind of those early pipeline, early stage projects, and then X projects we typically think about as slightly slightly larger things. And and we focus just on that first stage because over time we sort of say, okay, we want to build more confidence in the idea and and they sort of are a bit more execution focused the further down the pipeline you go. But in that early stage, uh, yeah, so I spent maybe two years in this team and have somewhere a spreadsheet of 100 ideas that we looked at during those two years. Um, and many you can you can very quickly, you know, you can very quickly kind of score off the list because, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the impact's not going to be that. It's like, okay, this is an exciting technology, but the problem's just not big enough. You know, it's too small. Yeah. Um, it's not going to have the scale of impact that we need. But then others, you say, okay, well, there's like huge problems, very clear, but we don't know that technology is going to work. And so that's where we might spend some time and it could be days, weeks or months kind of really digging into, you know, is the tech at the right level of readiness? Is it going to solve this problem? Is it the right solution for this problem? And I think at various points in that journey, you can have kind of various types of different brainstorms and discussions. So, you know, often in the very early stages, these are very casual conversations, right? So we don't necessarily put a lot of formality around things. It's more like, oh, I'm really interested in this problem. Who else in my team or in the building, you know, is an expert in this? And one one thing I love about X is we're quite small, like you know, a few hundred people, and and yet everyone's often on their like third, third or fourth or fifth area of expertise. And so sometimes you can kind of pop in the factory chat, like, oh, I want to talk to an expert in, um, you know, neuromodulation, or I want to talk to an expert in, you know ultralight robotics or an expert in, and awesome. sure enough someone's like oh yeah and like my last company or oh my phd was in that or well <laughs> like the best one is oh here's a paper i, I cited on this exact <laughs> thing that i wrote you know <laughs> two years ago um and so there's normally like a huge wealth of information um just very easily accessible and those conversations are often very casual very kind of like what if you know like mm-hmm. oh great like you're an expert in this field you know, like, do you think it's possible that this could go mainstream soon? Like how, you know, what are the big tech risks that are left? Like how crazy are these ideas? Um, you know, and I've, I've got somewhere a list of good questions to ask kind of field experts. And there are also things like, okay, what do you think would be necessary for this to be solved at scale, right? Like, you know, the kind of classic wave your magic wand, like give me a wish list sort of question. And then digging into some of those and figuring out, okay, well, what would it actually look like for that to be a reality? Like, is that magic wand item like really magic or could we with, you know, five to 10 years of hard work actually make that a reality? Um, so those are kind of some of the very early, almost formative questions. Like trying to understand what are the different, like what is the shape of the problem? What are the big, you know, the hurdles, the challenges in a, in a particular space? And then also learning about the state of the technology. And then as these ideas get a little bit more crisp, we might have more structured uh, pre-mortems are, are a great example or more structured discussions where we say, okay, we can now articulate a future. Like we can articulate a world where, you know, my granny can live at home in her own home for longer because she can very easily put on this pair of trousers. And, you know, when she starts to get a little bit unstable, it will stabilize her, for example. So we can sort of picture a future like that. And then we say, okay, well, what are the big risks between now and then? And we often call these monkeys, um, which is funny, 
but that's because um there's an analogy about okay if you wanted to build a talking monkey on a pedestal if that's the future that you want you're like okay great we want to have a talking monkey on a pedestal the temptation for many people is to start by building a pedestal because you know how to do that you're like great i can build some bricks i can you know do this engineering work but that's not really going to get you any closer to the outcome because the hard bit is getting the monkey to talk right mm. and so next we say well first we want to understand what are the really hard bits of this problem like what is equivalent to i love that yeah teaching a monkey to talk and if we know that that's possible yeah. then it's like okay well it's easy to build the pedestal so yes there's still work to do that but i would much rather take the bet on something where we've understood and made progress on like the really hardest parts of the problem Mm-hmm. And then say we've sort of de-risked that area. And then the rest is like a little bit more execution focused. Right. So we might say, well, an... what are the different, yeah, what are the different kind of monkeys? What are the different shapes of risks and problems? And then have really targeted discussions about what is the one experiment that might increase your confidence in that? And I think the other important thing to note there before, before I shut up, because I've, I've talked you off about this. Is, no, no, this is great. Um, is these early experiments, it's not about going from not possible to possible, right? Like the talking monkey, like we're not going to overnight prove that we can teach a monkey to talk, but it's about what takes our confidence from maybe 1% to 3% or to 5%. So in these early stages, most of these ideas are still not likely to work, right? Like they're still more likely than not to fail, but what, what are some things that take it from really crazy to like, oh, there's like just a hint of an idea here that it might be tractable. Um, and we often will will use as a proxy, like it's a good sign if, you know, five out of 10 people that you talk to think the idea is madness. Um, but you mm. just need a couple of your kind of experts, a couple of people who are really deep in the work who say, that's very bold, that's very ambitious, but maybe you're onto something. You know, you just want like a little bit of a positive signal at that stage. And that's enough for us to say there's, there's something worth digging into. Yeah, I was going to say, I love this approach to problem solving, ideating from an engineering principles perspective, you want to identify what your biggest risks are and figure out how you might address them before you then go in and put in a lot of resources, energy, time, humans towards solving something to then have to swallow the frog at the end and it's too big of a frog to put down your throat. And then I love what you just talked about as well, about being non-consensus, not most people thinking you're batshit crazy. Uh, But then then some of them are like, wow, this could actually work. And if you can figure out what the risks are, um, you can plow forward. How are you, so then are you hiring with people in mind to create this kind of culture? How are you embedding this culture within your processes? And it's so important in being able to experiment in this way. Great question. Because it's so hard. Like it's so counter to how most people operate to frequently kill projects, to suggest ideas that are probably not going to work, um, to be very dispassionate. So I do feel like we have to bend over backwards to try and encourage it, to make it easier to constantly reinforce it. some examples like definitely when we hire we hire first and foremost for culture fit especially in these early pipelines um and so a lot of our interview questions are talking about you know one of my favorite interview questions is tell me about a time you recently changed your mind on something like you had a firm Mm. belief and then you realized it was wrong right so it's like not just killing a project but being willing to to have a strong conviction 
and then be moved by data or by information, I think is really important. So we do screen for that in, in the interview process. We've also tried to design all of our kind of formal performance and um, promotion kind of mechanisms around how we approach problem solving rather than the outcome, right? So what we don't want is a situation where you're only going to get recognized, you know, as, as a high achiever if your project succeeds, because actually the people who are most useful to yeah. X are the ones who will quickly kill the first 20 ideas yeah. across their plate in order to eventually find the last one. So we, so we try and celebrate those people. That can be everything from we give out bonuses when a team kills their own project, right? So we say like, congratulations, like that's a real celebratory moment. They'll often like share out, you know, at an all hands meeting or they'll, they'll send a written postmortem and we give them kind of a formal reward for doing so. Um, you know, again, our kind of performance criteria are all about how you show up, right? Are you being dispassionate when you assess things? Are you being audacious, right? We'd rather you take big risks. And so we'll reward someone who is taking repeatedly like big ideas and big risks much more so than, um, than someone who successfully like achieves the things they set out to do, but they didn't shoot as far to begin with. Right. On this rewarding people for killing their projects, I, it makes me think of academia and in academia, you're rewarded for publishing papers. And sadly, I think we had too many papers published that we may need to implement this sort of process there. And then this makes me think about you guys are 12 years young at this point. You're within a larger corporation. What else are you doing to preserve creativity, to preserve your nimbleness? How is X creating this type of environment? Yeah, um, there's definitely many advantages, but also some challenges to being part of Alphabet. Uh, so we do have a really distinct culture. So for example, yeah, like our, our promotion process is very different. Um, our hiring process is very different uh, because we want to recognize that it is a different thing to try and take these big risks. And we don't want all of the other teams at Alphabet to adopt this mindset. Like that would be a bad thing for, for like critical right. infrastructure. Um, <laughs> and so as much as possible, we do sometimes feel like a, a bit of a sort of an island or, or we're very separate. So we don't necessarily feel like we're part of Alphabet and some of the cultural day-to-day things. On the other hand, there are so many great benefits to this. So you know, even when I started my project, for example, this this one about how do we help movement and assist movement, one of the earliest, one of one of our monkeys, one of our big questions, where I was like, well, if we can't do this, there's no point, is I said, we're going to need to be able to differentiate between very subtly different movements based on a very small amount of sensor data. So an example is, imagine you are going to lift a heavy box. That's a good moment where you probably want assistance, right? Like you, we want right. to help you stand up, you know, carrying this heavy item. But now imagine you're going down to tie your shoelace. Well, the first half of that movement is exactly the same. You're, you're crouching. But the last thing you want when tying your shoelace is your pants trying to like <laughs> shove you upright to try and help you stand up when you're trying to like stay crouched tying a shoelace, right? Like that would be terrible. Right. Um, yeah, and, and this could be even more problematic if we start to think about, you know, people who are, who are less stable or they're a trip risk, you know, like we just need to be like so accurate in understanding human movement. But without adding tons of sensors to people in a way that's really cumbersome. So we said, oh, like that's one of our monkeys. Like we want to do an experiment to answer that. And if I was in a startup environment, it would just be really hard to convince like a really impressive, you know, machine learning expert to tackle this problem with no guaranteed success, you know, for a short period of time. Um, 
etc. Or as being part of Alphabet, we could pull on, you know, an amazing team of um, of people within X who are kind of experts in machine learning. And then even the broader Alphabet system, right? It turns out Alphabet has done some modeling on understanding human movement and doing that from cameras. And so we had some of this infrastructure and kind of data pipelines already built. And so, you know, we could we could do some of that early de-risking much quicker. And so in summary, like, yes, we try and keep a very distinct culture, uh, but we also try and, you know, lean into the things that are great about Alphabet, which is particularly kind of access to talent, to engineering. Um, and also I think it gives us a nice place where we can contribute moderate successes. And so, although I spoke at the beginning about what we want, it's like world-changing moonshot. And ideally, you know very quickly whether something will be that scale or not before you invest a lot of time and effort. But of course, there are some projects where, you know, we get kind of halfway through and we say, oh, like the technology does work, but it's just going to be like a slightly smaller application than we had initially originally thought. And in those cases, Alphabet often wants to absorb some of them because they're like, oh, you've created a really valuable thing. Um, and so it's really nice to be able to say, great, like this team can kind of be absorbed back like back into, into Alphabet and, right. and continue to contribute the way that, that they can best and use the technology best without it being a total write-off. And I believe I read that some of the first ideas for X to work on came from Sergey and Larry, and you just brought up Right now, how the ideas are generated are folks will come and say, hey, how about this idea? How about that idea? And then it needs to meet these criteria to be qualified as a moonshot, meaning huge problem, breakthrough technology, and then feasible to execute on. I wonder whether you have examples of the opposite, where you come with all of these criteria and then say, what are ideas we can fulfill? So for instance, you can come with self-driving cars. This is breakthrough technology. We're making a ton of progress, huge impact for humanity, executable, but there are challenges. And so what are applications we can come up with? Do y'all ever take that approach? Yes. Um, so when I was in Rapid Eval, you would see both. And okay. I think when it worked best was also when, so, so I think individual people in that team might have different approaches as well. And so there okay. are some people who are real technologists, right? Like their favorite thing to do is to, read all the latest journal articles, like be on top of the emerging technology um, and think about like, how okay, how can we use this? And then other people on the team who knew a lot about some of the biggest problems in the world and they were thinking about how do we improve aging? How do we improve, you know, hunger? How do we improve, you know, internet access? And so some of the best conversations were when people would be kind of just like discussing these different things that they'd heard about and you would see someone on this side be, oh, you just said there was this breakthrough in like, this technology, I was trying to think of a solution for like the problem I have over here. Like, let's kind of bring them together. That's um, awesome. And so you do see ideas come from both the technology and from the problem space. And in the very early kind of stages, it's fine if it's more one than the other. I think by the time we want it to transition from like a very, very kind of early exploration into a, into a more well-defined problem or project, at that point, they normally have a good articulation or they should have a good articulation of both the technology and the problem. So it's kind of fine oh. if it starts more from one side, but we what we don't want to do is come up with technology that doesn't really solve any anything yeah. in the world, doesn't really solve any need. Um, and Makes so that's sense. a very strong filter that we put on now. Makes sense. And on this note, I want to ask you if you could share with me projects that you've either led, been a part of, that you can walk us through. But before we go there, 
I am so curious, what are some of the craziest ideas you've heard? And then what are some of the bad ones that got nicked that you can share? Um, craziest ideas. So there's, um, there's a project, which is now public, so I can talk about it, um, about ocean sustainability, right? It's like, how, yes. how can we improve the health of the oceans while still providing particularly food for a lot of people who rely on fish for protein? Um, and one of the problems that you have in, the, in fish farming is sea lice and you know sea lice like can attack the fish and you know mean that you have to write off a whole crop of fish which can be devastating for a farmer it's also right. sad for the fish right like that's not right. a great outcome for anyone and traditional treatments are often very chemical heavy which is not great and so we were brainstorming you know well, like are there better ways to treat lice and part of the problem is like it, fish move in these densely packed shoals right mm. and so any non kind of chemical approach like if you wanted a mechanical remover like well how do you separate the fish from each other like this is kind of painful um and so one of the craziest ideas someone came up with was okay well what if you put a laser backpack on fish like what if you just took one in a hundred fish gave them a backpack you don't really need a battery because you can power it by the swimming of the fish right so like that would be enough like recharge a little laser so like fish swims you know and every 10 meters it's kind of recharged its labor and then on the fish backpack it's got a camera and it's looking for like a you know a parasite on another fish and it will spot a parasite and it will shoot the laser you know and then it'll keep swimming and it and it kind of works because the fish are like in the shoal right so if you right. try to do this outside like you're never going to be able to get to the fish that are in to the penetrate and you know and so we got quite deep into this conversation and it's not a not a bad idea when you go into the weeds but then at some point you're like are we in a James Bond movie? Like, are we really talking about putting like laser backpacks on fish? fish. Like what? Um, So I think that was my favorite of the kind of wild ideas. I'm picturing how you would get to all the shoals of fish around the world and like have this mission of adding, putting this on their backpacks and then some form of tracking to see how it's going. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, this has not yet been deployed as a real solution. (laughs) Okay. So that was, that's a great one. Um, and then you also asked about kind of, I was trying to think of bad ideas. I mean, there are so many ideas that just don't work. I mean, maybe on a more serious note to contrast with the laser backpack fish. Um, I actually think there are many ideas that we propose, which come from a really good place where, mm-hmm. you know, someone in the organization sees a huge problem in the world in the world and they really want to solve it. And so they're trying to find a technology that like, if you squint, like solves a problem. But if you, if you thought deeply about kind of, what's actually happening in the world and the dynamics of that problem you might say well i'm not really sure that alphabet is the right person to solve that problem like it's not really a problem that's well suited to technology so i think those those i mean it's like a less fun answer but i think the kind of yeah. the bad ideas that are the hardest to, to wind down as projects are where like you really want the solution to exist you know like maybe it's going after water insecurity right or like war and conflict and it's like, right. I would love these problems to be solved. Yeah. But like, it, you know, but like, can we imagine the technology that we're creating, like solving that? Is there a risk that we make it worse? You know, is Alphabet the right organization to be tackling some of those? And so yeah. I think those are the ones which, which are like bad ideas in the sense of it's probably not going to go anywhere, but they're also actually the hardest to kill because everyone's so motivated to try and find the answer. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And coming from a public policy and development background, this 
so resonates for us. Are we learning anything from Loon and the impact there with providing internet lessons for an X or any other innovation lab? So many. Um, and I'm, I'm not an expert in Loon either, so I don't want to speak too far okay. outside my expertise. But um, I think there are two really interesting things about Loon. So in the end, we wound down part of that project. And that was also sad for people because it was one of these where internet accessibility was a huge yeah. problem. And the technology worked almost perfectly. You know, like, yes, nothing's ever quite perfect, but fundamentally the technology worked. The problem is they couldn't figure out the business model. And they had actually spent some time looking at this beforehand. You know, like, of, of course, they weren't silly enough to, to spend this much time mm -hmm. and effort without having, having a thought here. But what was sad is they knew that the people in the rural communities would be willing to pay the amount that it would cost to deliver the internet. Like, the fundamentals worked out. They just couldn't figure out, like, how to do it through existing telecommunications providers. And it doesn't make sense for yeah. Loon to be a new one. And, and it's one yeah. of these where the kind of, the problem is the average price, right? Like the right. average price that a person is willing to pay for internet is cheaper than we can provide with balloons. But and that people makes aren't me... served, like they, they would love to have internet access to this price. There's just no mechanism for doing that at the moment. Right. This makes me think of, for instance, Google Lens, which came out, I think it was 2014 and almost was too early for its time and makes me feel like Loon probably is a bit early at the moment. And once we have progress in terms of infrastructure, more penetration of phones where people in villages can use them. So maybe that can get revisited a few years, a few decades down the line. Well, I was, I was going to say the second interesting part of the Loon story is that we kind of wound down that project as it existed, which was very balloon focused, but because the technology was actually quite effective. And the most difficult thing that they'd had to solve is how to get balloons to communicate to each other like in the, in the middle of high altitude environments with a lot of movement between the balloons and still maintain a connection here. And so that was a lot of free space optics as a technology that they'd really refined for that. And they said, well, actually, that doesn't need to be on a balloon to be useful. And so although they kind of wound down balloon, a project that kind of was like emerged from the ashes, you know, like a phoenix. Um, it's called Tara and it's also public now. And it's doing really well where they said, oh, let's just take that bit of technology, the free space optics that's providing the internet. And there are places where you can put that on the ground and have it be really useful. For example, mm -hmm. they just crossed the Congo River. So the Congo River is notoriously like deep and wide. And so it's really difficult to get a fiber optic cable under. And so mm -hmm. there are many places where a city on one side of the river might have internet, but the other side just doesn't. And it's such a short distance, but right. if you can't get a cable under, you just, it's too long to get a cable round. Um, and so there are these instances where they say, oh, we can put like a free space optics sort of device on a pole yeah. on either side of the river. And much like up in the atmosphere, like, you know, stabilizing and transmitting internet between balloons, the exact same technology almost, they can now use to provide internet across the Congo River and gave this internet to almost a whole town. Very um, cool. I, I had not heard of Tara, so. It's, it's fairly newish still. And, and there aren't many instances where this makes sense in the, you know, for, for many reasons, such as this is a bit more subject to weather, for example, than a cable would. So when you can put a cable down, that's a great solution. But if you can't put a cable down, you can give people access to internet 99% of the time um, for a fraction of the cost, which is a great deal for people. So yeah, like it was a good example where um, even when the original idea kind of fails, 
it doesn't mean that there aren't parts of it that become really useful. Exactly. Do you always learn something from your failures that you can move forward with? Okay. So let me ask you to share a project that you've worked on then. Sure. Um, I can tell about the project I'm currently working on because it's kind of gone the furthest through the pipeline, but it's okay. worth knowing that, you know, I've probably worked, yeah, a hundred early ideas and then maybe yeah. six or seven kind of medium sized ones. So, you know, as I mentioned, I became interested in this by looking at aging. Yeah. So it's one of these instances where like, my day job was hanging out with the most intelligent people in the world discussing all these breakthrough technologies. And at the same time, my grandmother was just, you know, was just struggling. She was 95 Mm -hmm. and had recently lost her husband and kind of wanted to live alone or wanted to stay in her own home, you know, but didn't have necessarily the support and the systems to do that. And I was spending a lot of time going over and, and being with her. And the contrast between the kind of future that we were imagining at work and then like the daily life of someone who, you know, just wants to be able to do their own grocery shopping, to do the gardening, you know, to cook dinner. Um, I just, I was, I was very motivated. To, okay. I want to see if we can make life easier, not in every domain, but in some domains. And so I started almost like a family of investigations that are all aging related. Right. And so a lot of my early days were just talking to people So talking to experts in geriatrics on kind of the more medical side, talking to a lot of older adults about like what most matters to them, you know, what would they, what do they wish they could do that they can't currently do, you know, understanding what the requirements of any sort of solutions might be. Um, And ended up kind of sort of breaking the problem into a few different spaces. And I can talk through some of the logic of, of why we're now concentrating on mobility, um, which is not to say that we would never touch in these spaces again, but just my my thinking process as an individual. Um, I really cared about Alzheimer's, for example. Um, and ideally, we want to cure Alzheimer's. And that is clearly a solution that people should be working on and are working on. And I do not have like any useful skills to contribute that, right? So when we sort of, when I looked into that space, I said, right. okay, this is probably a pharmacological solution. There's a lot of research happening. I'm glad that it's happening. Like, should exist, probably not like the thing that I'm going to... I'm not the one to solve it. Mm -hmm. Um, There were parts of Alzheimer's support that were interesting. So um, already many people have in their home, like a Google Home or an Amazon Alexa. And a lot of the things that I was calling my granny about, to some extent, could be automated. You know, basic things such as um, today is Tuesday. Remember that the postman comes on Tuesday or, you know... uh, we've just done the shopping for the week. That means that tonight you should have the chicken for dinner, you know, whereas to, like, me- like meal planning almost um, right. to the more, to the more micro, like, you know, well, we turn the, we turn the oven on like 20 minutes later, let's make sure we turn the oven off again. Um, a lot, a lot of those sorts of kind of just check-ins almost and kind of helping people, helping people put themselves in context, right? So when you have early stage Alzheimer's, you can do any individual task and live in the moment, fairly well but you just sometimes lost the context about where you are and so I do think there's a lot of scope for the devices that are already in people's homes to provide more reminders more support more check-ins in a way that doesn't have to be super intrusive um, but could provide a lot of value to people with with early Alzheimer's so I spent some time looking at that idea but it's a good example of one where it's actually too easy for X to be interested 
by which I mean like that technology should exist, but it's probably more like one or two years away, not like five to 10 years away. And we have such scarce resources that that's a problem probably better tackled by other parts of Alphabet, right? So we actually right. end up talking a lot to the assistant team and, and you know, said, can right. you look at just including this, you know, in part of mm-hmm. your your workflow? Um, you know, all done by potentially a startup, right? Like there's there's no real need for this to be such a transformative breakthrough moonshot. That could just be right. a product, right? Um, so that was kind of Alzheimer's as an example of, of a branch that we kind of looked at, you know, mm-hmm. and then we looked down kind of physical health and I went through a similar process of what are some of the most common ailments, what are getting people's way, what do they really want? And just one more example of many that we looked at, something that came out of a lot of the user interviews was incontinence. So a lot of work, when you ask, not some, not every, but some older adults, when you say, you know, what do you wish you could do with less support or more independently or don't have a good solution for, going to the bathroom is often number one or two on the list. Yeah. Because it's so associated with dignity as well, right? Right. Like you want to be independent. You don't want to have to ask people for help with that, you know, and, or it's embarrassing. You know, well, sometimes you'd have to kind of dig into some stories, right? Someone might say, oh, I wish I could travel more. And I said, well, why can't you travel? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it's too hard. So well, what, talk me through it. Why is it too hard? And the answer is, well, if I have to go to the bathroom too often, I can't go on a bus trip because, you know, it's embarrassing or it's impractical or the bus doesn't stop enough or I can't right. drive or I'm not I'm not confident in it. Um, and so I was really interested in that as a problem area. And of course, it doesn't have that much attention going to it relative compared to some of the other areas, precisely because it's not the kind of sexy thing that a 22-year-old Stanford graduate, you know, is excited about right. working on. Um, but it will be so life-changing for some people. Mm-hmm. Um but again, kind of when we dug into, you know, okay, but is there a good emerging technology? Like, is there a breakthrough technology that could help with that problem that Alphabet is well suited to solve? We couldn't really find a slam dunk. Whereas human movement, you know, kind of mobility, knee pain, joint movement, fault, like falls are another big one. Um, that was, that emerged as another huge problem area, which enabled lots of different stages of life. Um, and one where when you ask people what they want in a solution, they often say they want it to be hands-free, um, something they're going to put on and forget about, um, something that will let them control, you know, like they might they might want to move under their own power for most of the time, but just the hill at the end of the walk they struggle with. You know, they just mm. wish they had help up that hill or something like that. And the more we talked about the shapes of solutions that might work for people and then kind of overlaid that with, well, where is current technology at? Um, you know, a lot of academics have been working on exoskeletons. There's been some work from the military all of which was not appropriate for this application, but showed that the underlying technology was getting there, right? That motors and batteries were at a point where these could be lightweight and really useful products. Um, and so that was kind of how that investigation went from a really broad, like aging, it's like this huge thing, right. you know, broke it down into different problem areas, looked at kind of what technologies could solve different problems. And I probably spent like more than a year just getting smart and learning about the problem spaces, the technologies, you know, meeting experts, going to conferences um, before settling on, okay, this is, of all of those different things, um, mm. physical movement is something that makes sense for us to actually spin up some very targeted explorations in. So, the Were you doing years, this by yourself when you were going to all these conferences getting smart at this point? Yeah, so I was working in a team of rapid evaluators 
and they were I was, they were sort of brain partners. So I got a lot of okay. help and discussion from them, but definitely was something where an individual was kind of leading the structuring and got the it. thinking. But the next stage, which is, if you want to kind of settled on this, I then scoped what are the experiments that would move that that probability needle from one to three percent, mm-hmm. um, and that was a point when we started to do things like higher residents. So often PhD students who'd done their PhD in this area. And we could convince them to come out for six months for a well-defined, like probably nothing will happen at the end of the six months, but we want to just do this one or two experiments um, or you're leaning into partnerships or vendors. Like in these early stages, we didn't hire full-time team members because probably the project wouldn't exist beyond that. Um, but I found, yeah, particularly residents and collaborations, like good ways to do short experiments, to build confidence. Um, right. And then it was maybe two years later that we actually hired our first kind of full-time employee. Wow. And where is the project now? We're still in the, in the kind of de-risking exploration stage, but we've gone from, you know, early experiments were very specific, targeted answer a question sort of experiments. And we actually increased our confidence in the technology a lot. So mm. that means that our next monkey, like the next kind of big question is less tech focused. And it's about, Okay, but will people actually keep wearing this? And I am especially worried about mm. placebo and novelty effects. Mm. So we can get really good feedback in, in our lab, right? Like someone can come in and they can try a prototype and they can say, oh, yeah, that really helped me climbing the stairs. But in the next breath, they'll say, but, you know, like there are wires hanging out and it and it took like yeah. 10 minutes to put on. And, and there's like lots of caveats there. And so... For, for us, like the next big monkey is, will people wear it, you know, when we're not looking, when they're at home, you know, and, and the novelty right. is Is it practical? Yeah. And for that, we need some, some more integrated prototypes. So we're kind of actually doing a shift in our team of doing separate experiments into for the first time trying to build a prototype that can do all of this in a package that looks closer to a product. Um, so that's what we're working on now. But we're still in a sort of very high risk early stage exploration. So it's still a very small team and we're still trying to answer some of these questions, um, but with a bit more seriousness than, than in the rapid eval team. And definitely customers all the time don't want to hurt your feelings to your face and say very nice things to you, to your face. And you need to really get to the root of, but are they going to actually use it when I'm not here? So that's a very smart test to, to perform in monkey 2D risk. But this sounds so cool, Catherine. What a cool job. You're basically thinking about big moonshot problem areas that need solving with technology that requires significant development and then getting smart, working toward it. I can think of so many people who, for them, this is their dream job. How how does a student or a researcher or talented human excited to come work at X get to X? What advice do you have? There are two typical ways that people might join X. Mm-hmm. The most common way is that you're hired onto a project. Um, and so just because that's when most humans in the building are kind of working. Um, and so for that, the advice is uh, just be exceptional, like at the problem that you're solving, and if, which I know sounds <laughs> dumb, but if you're... You're, yeah, I thought you said just be exceptional. Just be period. exceptional. Like, yeah, well, full that's... stop. It's <laughs> a great, it's a great start. Um, but you know, so for example, when when we were starting to get more serious about wearable robotics, I just asked everyone I met, you know, who are the yeah, best people in the field sense. on this, right? Yeah, and and of course, like 
X might not have a project in your area, but you should pick an area that you're passionate about. And if X doesn't have a yep. project, well then just don't come to X problem solved. You know, yep. if, you're, if, if you're lucky enough that like you're working on a project that you find really, or a problem space that you find really interesting and X is also interested in the problem space, that's kind of the most common way to join to join X. Mm-hmm. Um, the other way is to be hired onto one of these very early teams. Uh, that's that's less common just because they're smaller, right? So the rapid eval team is, you know, less than a dozen people often. Um, whereas you know the larger projects will have uh, will have many more on them. Um, and then we really look for people who are we, we'd often say T shaped, by which we mean deeply mm-hmm. technical in a thing, because what we care about is your ability to get deeply technical and very smart about any particular problem, but right. then also really broad, so curious about the world, interested in learning about new problems, trying different things. Um, and that's sort of a very classic shape. Um, for example, my current manager, she's great. She was uh, a musician focused on improv for a while in her career. Like that's not at all tech related, but that's like, <laughs> so, it's so X, right? Somehow that like, yeah that someone who's done this really compelling, interesting thing over here. And it hints at the kind of person who's curious about the world, who wants to try different things. Right. Um, so yeah, like we're not necessarily looking for the person who's got perfect A's on, you know, a very linear career trajectory. I think we're more interested in people who think differently, try different things, are curious, are excited about the world um, and are willing to learn and try and fail. Yeah. Love it. And learning and trying and failing and being open to that feedback, super important. You have an incredible story. Let's talk a little bit about you and how you got to X. Catherine, you grew up in Australia. I hope I have this right because you spent so much time all over the world that I let me know if I miss anything. You grew up in Australia. You were a physics and math nerd, uh, won challenges, and then you have like four master's degrees. You spent time in development. And when you got to X, it felt so perfectly a collision of all your interests in terms of being nerdy and physics and math and being so curious about the world and wanting to impact and develop. So tell me about what your journey was like. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you've, you've said it perfectly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I was a huge nerd. Um, and I think I also fell into that trap early in my career of I was good at something and people kept mm-hmm. saying I was good at something. So I kept doing it. And I did love kind of the process of learning, but I was on that kind of treadmill of, you know, you're good at something in high school, you then study at university. I was good enough at university. So I sort of signed up for a PhD. And I never really stopped to question, what do I want to do in the world? Like, what do I want my kind of day-to-day life to be? And what do I want my contribution to society to be? Um, I just kind of said yes to whatever the next obvious step was. And the more time that I spent in physics, the less that I actually loved it. And I think the reason for that is that I loved learning about physics. Like I loved the stage when you're, you know, in an undergrad lab, like doing a hands-on experiment. And in one experiment, you can like determine like the value of gravity. And you're like, that's so cool, you know, and this is like how they did it, you know, centuries ago. And I felt like the more I got into academic research, the less it was learning something new every day. And the more it was, you know, work on like a very, very small part of this huge problem, um, you know, often sort of more isolated as well. And for me, it felt less connected to the world. Now, 
that's because I also made the mistake of picking the most theoretical topic I could imagine. <laughs> um, I started my PhD in theoretical astrophysics, looking at um, the gravitational entropy of objects just before they become a black hole. Very cool. Well, cool to say, but like... <laughs> I know a couple of girls who are obsessed with black holes right now, so... <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to learn everything they can. Uh, but yeah, continue. Cool to say, but very theoretical. It's like, how could you ever measure this? Right. And my entire topic that I'd spent maybe a couple of years looking at at that point um, was looking at one term of one equation for entropy. Mm -hmm. So I was like, basically this, you know, when black holes form, there's a discontinuity in entropy. That normally means our equations are wrong. Like it's not very likely that there's a sudden change in, in a physical attribute. Mm -hmm. So I was just trying to like add a term to this equation to fix it. But that's so small, like that's so small in the sense of, you know, right. spending years of your life on this like one very narrow thing. Um, and then I also found the day-to-day, -day, uh, not ideal for me, um, is maybe a good way to say it. Yeah. Like, very individual, um, very theoretical. You know, a lot of the work was like by myself in my little room. Um, we did have a window, which was great. Um, but Thank goodness. But yeah, like I'd missed, you know, I'd missed that kind of early, the love of physics was also often with people and like working on a problem together. And, um, yeah. and I think I started to lose that. Uh, so I actually dropped out of my PhD program. Um, I think the other thing to say is I probably didn't have the maturity in that moment to know how to self-manage, right? Like I think now if I was in a similar situation, I might say, well, I just know that I, I'm an extrovert. I need more kind of energy in my life or I need to structure my time better. I think mm -hmm. I also struggled with, the, the years of life working on that one little thing and I need some intermediate milestones. Yeah. But dropping out was probably the best thing I could have done. I mean, obviously very challenging in the moment. And I actually remember, I didn't even frame it to myself as dropping out because that felt too much like failing. And at that point, I wasn't yet on the bandwagon of how good failure was. So instead I took a break. And so I said, okay, I'll just put this on pause. Um, and I, and I didn't know, I didn't know what to do but I'm a scientist. And so classic right. scientist, I was like, well, I'll do an experiment. So I thought <laughs> I'll pause the PhD because I don't know if the problem is like academia in general or just my very specific subject. So I'll pause the PhD and I'll take two years out and I'll spend one year doing the best thing I can find in physics that's not my particular topic. So that's like testing is a problem just my topic area. And then I'll do a year of something that is as different as I could possibly find and change like, you know, and in particular leave physics and look at something that feels more impactful. Cause I, I did have a sense that I was craving doing something more meaningful. Um, so that's what I did. So I did like a two year experiment. Um, the year of the best physics I could find was a master's program at this institute in Canada, which is amazing. They just do theoretical physics. No one's ever heard of them, but they're like top of the field in this and like surrounded by some of the best minds learning about some of the best stuff. And that was good. Uh, but I definitely enjoyed more the year that I spent uh, basically volunteering for an NGO. So this was an, a nonprofit uh, that worked in international criminal justice. So they did a lot of evidence collection for the International Criminal Court. They worked on human rights issues. And they were essentially started and ran by some incredibly talented human rights lawyers. Now, it may have escaped your notice, I'm not a lawyer. I was in no way qualified for this job. Like, I mean, I, I, yeah. So, so one thing that was really interesting about that is I was like, oh, like, what am I, how am I going to be useful here? Mm -hmm. But I learned another lesson that year, which is 
sometimes I think you can be most useful because you're different, right? And so they actually didn't need someone to do any more legal work for them. They had many better people at that. What I could do is, you know, do a repair on a BlackBerry in the field somewhere. You know, I could start them a website. This is back when websites were a novel right. new idea um, and very quickly spin that kind of thing up. You know, do some basic accounting analysis for them, things like that. And so if anything, being more quantitative and more a little bit more techy uh, meant that I could do useful if not particularly high-powered work for them. Um, you can also really provide fun. different perspectives, help them think about something in a way they've never thought about before, ask questions they've never questioned. How, why do we actually do things this way? Help them be more creative. Yeah, definitely. I mean, to be fair, at that point, I was still like the intern, you know, so I probably, to their credit, I wasn't exactly, you know, providing meaningful you, critique. They were like, get the blocks. coffee. You're like, but why do we need someone to get coffee? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but but now that's exactly how that manifests, right? So the same thing that back then it was, oh, I'm just useful because I can fix a, a BlackBerry, you know. And of yeah. course, now I think you're right. Like at a higher level, being different allows you to bring these different perspectives. But it was a good early lesson in that. Um, anyway, I'm going on a long tangent, but I did this. And, right. And then you and, got somehow in there, you also got an MBA. Was this because you wanted to get the breath to add to the depth of the tea? Oh, that, uh, that was way after. Okay. I feel like I need to step through the whole story, although it's definitely <laughs> long and you'll have to edit it way down. Um, so I did this experiment. And the reason I, I spent a lot of time on this is I actually really advocate experiments in a career. I think it's so mm -hmm. common to be in that situation of, oh, I don't like what I'm currently doing, but I don't know what to do next. Like, well, how would anyone know, right? Like right. you can't possibly experience everything in the world. And really? a year of each is a big commitment. But I think whenever someone's curious about something, finding like reframing it as, oh, I'm not going to quit my job and start a new career. Like that's really scary. Frame it as, oh, I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to take a sabbatical. I'm going to take six months off. I'm going to so quit resonate. this job. And before I take the next kind of job that's in the very linear direction, I'm going to take some time to try something really different. I think is something that um, that more people should should try. And yeah, I just want to recognize there's some privilege in that, right? Like it's hard to give up a, a very safe career path if you don't have mm -hmm. a little bit of a financial cushion or parents are supportive, etc. Um, but to the extent that you can, I think that's a really um, a really compelling yeah. way to just gain more conviction about what you want to do in the world. Totally. I also advocate doing a bunch of internships. So try maybe yeah. four internships in one year, three months each in various industries. You can make money. You're going to learn so much. I feel like the first three months is always the most intense anyway, getting to soak up everything in this new industry, processes, subject matter, et cetera. And that's a great use of time. And it's so interesting that it's so natural for people to think about doing that when they're in university or in grad school. And then we sort of lose that muscle. But there's actually right. no reason that someone who's, you know, in their 30s couldn't do that in the same yeah. way that someone in their 20s can. I feel like I just did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, you're a great example. It's <laughs> such a good point. Why do we lose this notion of learning? Life is about continuous learning. There's always something to learn. You end up learning from, I'm learning from my nieces who are teaching me about the world as they see it and will continue to do that. And so seeing the world and careers or what you're doing, what you're passionate about in that lens and coming up with ways to keep experimenting. Yeah. So then you did that. And then what happened? We can, um, we can. So, yeah. The abridged version is, um, so I, I much preferred the kind of nonprofit impact work. So then spent okay. most of the next decade working in that space um, and really enjoyed it. Felt really high impact. I think one thing that in my twenties, I hadn't thought I should be prioritizing was any sort of sense of 
quality of life other than in the work context. So when I made that decision, that was kind of ripe in my 20s. But of course, it led to many years of like lots of travel, living in remote places. The last job I had before, before I met you um, <laughs> was in kind of agriculture development. You know, we'd start yeah. these kind of small processing factories that would then be able to help farmers, you know, get more value from their crops because they can kind of sell a high value crop. Really great businesses, like, you know, couldn't say better things about that kind of approach, except for the fact that it meant that I was living in quite rural communities. Right. I didn't speak the language particularly well. I'd try, but I have no talent for it. Um, and I think there are a couple of things that came together at once. One is, you know, I think a broader sort of questioning of like, am I the right person to be doing this work? Like often my job was to start up some of these companies and then try and hand them over to a local general manager. And I was just feeling increasingly uncomfortable as like the white woman, you know, mm-hmm. coming in with like the capital and with like the solutions for you. Yeah. Didn't yeah. love that. Um, <laughs> it's not and, you. So. <laughs> right. Like a bit awkward. Um, and at the same time, like I just hadn't, I mean, honestly, I hadn't held down any serious relationships, but it yeah. was such a high travel, like very rural based job. But that wasn't really realistic. But even friendships mm-hmm. as well. Like I just didn't, I had a very yeah. limited social life. Or my social life was the expat community in some of these places, which is, again, didn't feel like the kind of person I wanted to be longer term. Right. Um, and so that was when I came to America. And I think the, the, pro- the challenge I had in that moment is I'd done all this early experimentation in a career to find a job which did tick all of my job boxes, right? Like it, it ticked everything mm-hmm. that I sort of decided I wanted in life. Yeah. And I loved it for so long, but I just over time, you know, wanted like wanted more personally, like it almost felt like quite a selfish decision. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd not put any time into thinking about well, what do what do I want in life outside of a career? Like yeah. that was kind of a foreign concept. Um, and so I didn't really know what to do. I was again in this kind of stuck. Oh, like, yeah, I, I've solved for everything and I'm still not super happy moment. Um, but I'd never been to America. I'd never, well, I said I'd never lived here. I think I'd been through an airport once or twice. Um, and it felt like this huge country that was such a mystery to me. Um, and because my original kind of undergrad degrees had all been in physics and mathematics, and that was a really different world to what I was now in, um, I thought I might enjoy doing something like an MBA to just meet people and kind of have another cohort of, of adult friends, right? Like, yeah you know, particularly because I'd come from this environment, like I didn't have that many friends like from undergrad because they all stayed in physics and I didn't. Um, and then I'd spent a few years working in these very remote places that didn't really have any strong adult friendship. And mm-hmm. I find it quite difficult to make adult friends like just randomly. It's like tough, it's, yeah. it's tough. And I was like, even if, even if all I get from this MBA is like a chance to form like a new cohort of people who are maybe interested in similar things to what I'm interested in, that would be amazing. Um, and I did. So that was great. Um, and then, yeah. And then coming out of that, uh, I was trying to decide what to do next and wanting to balance. Okay. I'm really good at science. Haven't flexed that muscle in a while. Um, I want to have impact, like the kind of impact I was having in this previous job, but I also want to live somewhere where I could imagine raising a family. Um, yeah. and a friend of mine heard me say this and she was at X and she was like, you've just described X. Like that is our day job. Um, and yeah. I'd actually never heard of X before that. But she was um, a very close friend of mine and a very strong advocate for me in the organization as well. So she helped me kind of get an interview. Um, and, you know, I'm one of those people which, like, may, you know, 
may not have been an obvious fit for any of the projects, but when you look at... But that's like, per- you're perfect. Yeah, that kind of t-shaped. Everything you just described about yourself, yeah. Yeah, so um, they were lucky enough to... Or, no, I was lucky enough that they gave me... No, they of, were lucky enough. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that wasn't a Freudian slip. I just live like that. So and I actually only did six months initially. Um, because To help you know, out with, with a project? Yeah, um, I will, to be fair, I actually joined on a very specific project for a few months and then ended up turning into the Rapid Eval team. Um, but... But yeah, like just to try it out, you know, same idea. I was like, yeah. it's an experiment. And it was one of those experiments I didn't want to finish. Yeah. So here I am years later. Beautiful. A couple of things I want to highlight from what you described. One, in your 20s, you were traveling a ton, experimenting based off of what you discovered while you were going for your PhD that, hey, actually, I don't really enjoy this. I need more people. Let me experiment and try different things. That is incredible, I think, maturity for you at that time to say, I'm going to run these experiments. I'm going to do a year of this one, a year of that one. I love it. Let's do more of that. And you can do shorter. You can do like three months or whatever fits your schedule, your budget. You can find ways to get paid for it. We discussed that. Second is you mentioned as you were traveling the world doing development work, you felt a little like you weren't serving yourself. You weren't filling your cup. You weren't taking care of Catherine. And something we've read together with Marcin, I believe the book is slow, but don't quote me on this, is The author says, take care of yourself, your loved ones, and your passions in that order. And it's something we live by. I think it's so important to fill your own cup, whether it be making sure you're sleeping enough, eating healthily, exercising, doing the things you love, and then spending time with your loved ones, significant other, your family, your friends, people who fill you up, and then working on your passions. And it's something that helps keep our cups full. And then third, oh, shoot, I forgot what my third one was well I can riff on that for a minute which is that sounds really true I think the other thing that happened for me was that what would fill my cup changed over time so Mm -hmm. when I was younger I was mission orientated and like what was filling my cup was that sense of purpose and I was helping the world and I was doing something impactful and it was only as I got older that I said actually I also want to get more you know interaction with people more space in my life for relationships Love it. Totally. And we change, we evolve and the things that matter to us evolve and change. And then the third thing that you brought up that I want to highlight is this sense of you really had no idea you were going to end up at X. And this was your experiences taking you here. And I hear this from a lot of people. I feel similarly that uh, where life has taken us is not something that we could have planned and looking forward, but in hindsight makes a ton of sense. So being open to experiences and learning from them is really, really cool thing. So thank you for sharing your experience with us, Catherine. Two more questions that I'm actually so interested in. One, so this is a bit of a like tough spot that we're in with tech in Silicon Valley and wanted to get your personal sense, given that you're in the space. We are seeing with the economy layoffs in tech. How are you feeling about that? I also want to note that, for instance, in I think it was 2015, 2014, Alphabet was or Google was getting restructured into Alphabet. And there was a lot of worry about Google X, but it even strengthened Google X's position. And so just with that context, how are you feeling about the economy and changes today? Yeah, firstly, this is going to be tough, I think, for a lot of the people who are experiencing layoffs. Um, I also find, especially with the kind of the global news at the moment, right, whether this is war and conflict in other countries, whether this is famine, it looks like it's coming through. You know, at the end of the day, I still feel so lucky to be living in a country and in a society where I don't think 
I personally will ever be worried about food insecurity, for example, even if I'm laid off immediately. So, you know, with, with that context, we uh, are fortunate. Yeah, we absolutely. are still fortunate. Exactly. Um, that's it. You know, I think it is going to be tough for a lot of tech workers in the Valley. Uh, I don't think Alphabet is immune from feeling like definitely a little bit more tight. I also think there's been some healthy criticisms around when times are really good everyone grows in every direction, right? Like you say yes to everything and you try everything that might work. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, we, we talked at the beginning about how difficult it is to kill projects. You know, I think it's especially difficult to wind down ideas which are like sort of working, but maybe not as efficient, or like as good as they used to be. And right. X is maybe a bit better at that, but I think many tech companies and Alphabet overall had a little bit of this, right? Started lots of projects and, I don't think this is a bad moment for us to take a hard look and say, well, what are we really good at? What are we really going to double down and commit to? And then maybe there are other areas where we can wind down those efforts. Um, I don't think it's going to be like a universal kind of, you know, cutting across the board or anything like that. Um, and if anything, you know, Sundar and Ruth came out recently and kind of doubled down on their support for new climate initiatives, for example. So mm -hmm. there's definitely like still, uh, investment happening and the things that are most important and i'm hoping it will be more of a clarifying moment of okay but well, what is really important and what isn't really important um i also think alpha has an advantage of um of being kind of big enough and you know still still generating plenty of revenue and things like that that they can say okay well what are the right long-term decisions and x is a good example of somewhere which um of course like it's an investment right like of course, we're costing some money now, but the idea is that we are also creating the projects which, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now are going to be, you know, as significant um, in terms of Alphabet's portfolio as, as some of the existing very profitable centers. And so I've been pleasantly surprised that um, Ruth and Sundar are, um, are always affirming that and saying that they view X as, as a real source of investment and the future growth in the company. Um, but more specifics than that, I don't really, I don't really know and can't comment on. But it definitely, the, the feeling is is a little bit more like, okay, everyone needs to be a little bit more thoughtful about how we spend money and maybe not not throw budget and headcount at, at sort of, at things unnecessarily. And to the extent that it is encouraging us to make tough decisions early, that could actually be a, a good thing for kind of helping us be more efficient. And come out stronger, bringing us back up the technologies that are 10 years out this is very, very cool. What's it like working with some of these technologies that are really breakthrough, cutting edge, avant-garde? And what are the ones that you can share with us that you're looking forward to coming out? Oh, I'm, I mean, as a huge science nerd, um, I do find it very exciting yeah. just to go to like <laughs> tech talks, you know, around X yeah. and hear about what people are working on. Uh, I should say like the day-to-day -day experience is often frustrating, right? Because like the way that these technologies go is, you get really excited for the first hour or two that you hear about them and you work with them. And then because they're so breakthrough, nothing works, you know, like mm. on, almost all of the time you'll spend right. It's hours. literally break, breakthrough. Exactly. <laughs> they don't tell you that the break and the breakthrough, you know, we, um, I can share this because it's about my own project, but we were interested in the early days in soft actuators. So mm -hmm. not just kind of having, you know, like a solid motor, but having like, like really soft motors, like almost artificial muscles really breakthrough technology. But one of our poor interns, I swear, spent a month like trying to like by hand manufacture these and things would keep breaking. And, um, oh, you know, yeah. and in the end of the day, he had something that was like sort of worked, 
But when you compared it to the ease of use of just traditional electromagnetic motors, it's like, well, actually, I would just rather have a small, like, rigid, you know, puck that you can just yeah. clip onto your knee than try and deal with these, like, fragile, yeah. you know, frustrating, annoying little bits. Um, and so that's quite funny. Like, it's amazing how quickly you go from, oh, this is so cool, to like, oh, why won't my <laughs> code <laughs> compile? Why won't my string, you know, <laughs> yeah. stop breaking? It's a good example, though, because it's not glamorous all the time. People think of Iron Man, the movie, or SpaceX's rockets. and Wow, that's so cool. Or Loon, or Verily, or Waymo. But it's the result of tons of hours and years of humans' dedication and time working through these small, minute details and literally piecing these parts together and making it work. Definitely. So that's a really helpful perspective. And especially some of these are larger team efforts. And so, mm -hmm. you know, like whenever anyone says, oh, we work on exoskeletons, that sounds really cool. But a more accurate yeah. description would be anyone on my team would be like, well, I work on this one sensor and it, it's really important for the exoskeleton. But for the last two months, I have been like debugging this one little sensor. Um, but of yeah. course, you need like a team to work together like this in order to come out with something. And yeah, maybe one little build on this is, um, I do like to have fun team moments and activities that kind of remind people of the bigger picture. And on our project, it's easier because we're working on something which is very tangible. So for example, we often bring in like real people who experience, you know, knee osteoarthritis or who, you know, have other kind of mobility challenges and just having everyone on the team hear them talk about, you know, their daily experience and then like what a technology like this could mean to them is a good way to break people out of, oh, my little sensor isn't working to like, oh yeah, this is like why I'm doing this. Um, yeah. yeah it's really We're humans, right? And we need to be pulled out of these details and out of this well that we're bogged down into to remind ourselves of the big picture and why we're doing this and why this is exciting and, and all of the great things about it. So then 10 years from now, where do you think we'll be technology-wise? What bets are you placing, Catherine? Ooh, I bet that we will have the technology necessary to mitigate or reverse a lot of climate change. Oh, I, I really thing, hope so. I think the thing that I am hopeful, but also like nervous about is whether we'll have the political will to do it. You know, so I'm very bullish yeah. on the technology side. But as you said at the beginning, like a lot of these huge global problems, you need both technology and you need policy or you need kind of Absolutely. stakeholders who are bought in, et cetera. So that's something I'm very excited about. Um, I'm also hopeful that we will have more robots doing jobs that humans don't want to do, right? Whether this is very mm -hmm. repetitive manual labor or whether this is dangerous tasks. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, we'll hopefully have more humans doing jobs where like having humans really make a difference. And like to come full circle, we spoke at the beginning about my grandmother and, you know, how watching her going through the aging process and struggling with that. There were also many things where she said, I want a human for this, right? And like, for example, we're really short of people who can be caregivers, right? Like, and having a human being someone who can check in, you know, every day with an older adult and have like a meaningful conversation with them or having right. um, caregivers who can take care of children, which will also then enable more like gender equality in the workforce and things like that. There are so many roles where we want like humans to be the center of them. Um, yeah. And so hopefully by freeing up some workforce from the dangerous, very manual tasks, we can also like recenter you know, humans in the kind of jobs that should stay human, I think. Yeah. Um, so I'm really uh, excited about that too. 
Yeah. A lot of people scared of, oh, the automation is going to be so terrible for us, but there are so many other ways we can involve humans in more enjoyable tasks. Like you said, checking in on caregivers, human connection, helping reduce loneliness, also using our brains more. And so really excited about that too. What climate tech are you so excited about? Is it harvesting carbon away from, oh, if you can't share, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, the things I'm most excited about, I can't share, so I probably shouldn't. Okay. Um, But so I can be optimistic. Well, and I think one thing I'm optimistic about is I'm seeing several bets in several different areas that are all potentially promising. Like, yes, like drawing drawing carbon out of the atmosphere directly is something that there are several promising adventures, not just inside, Mm -hmm. outside. Um, Right. Yeah. You know, same for kind of electrifying the electricity or electrifying objects and like making the grid more sustainable. Um, Similarly for kind of transport, like, you know, every different area, there's now so much attention going to that I feel there are lots of different groups innovating so mm-hmm. you know agriculture is another huge one which you know is a big problem but I'm seeing lots of progress on the tech front yeah I think the thing that's going to bottleneck it is going to be the political will um but yeah all right well we have lots of work still to do lots of political private sector collaborations and looking forward to tackling it together this was great Catherine loved having you learned so much from you thanks for coming on Thanks for having me. This is lovely. And it's a wrap. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.